Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined as I am this week's by Jeremy Goldcorn, a man about whom it must be said that he bears no resemblance whatsoever to Ray Chung Gong, not even <laughs> in the slightest. Uh, that and, of course, that he's the man. I can be rude and arrogant. You can. <laughs> But I ask that you not. Anyway, Jeremy is, of course, the man behind the fabulous Danway.org. Welcome back, man. How how are you on this sultry summer evening? Very, very nice. I like this weather a lot. Oh, you do? Yeah. I mean, I just got back from Hong Kong, and uh, it, it's so nice to be in dry heat. You know? This is not so dry. I mean, today is, is humid. It, compared to Hong Kong, it's like uh, the Sahara Desert. So let's talk a little bit about your, your sojourn in Hong Kong. Um, what do you have to report? Um, how does Occupy Central look like at street level? Well, I, uh, you know, I'm not sure I'm the best person to report. I spent quite a lot of it in uh, meetings and uh, some of it on Lama Island. Uh, but I did talk to a bunch of different people. And I, I don't know, you know, it's, I, uh, the, I mean, the media reporting, I think, uh, in, in, in the English media has covered a, a wide variety of viewpoints. And uh, most of them have some validity. It's difficult to understand the numbers. What I think is rather telling is something pointed out to me by an old friend of mine, Chris Horton, who is the founder, one of the founders of GoKunming.com, which he later sold and moved to Hong Kong, where he's been living for a while. And he did point out that on, on July 1, which was a holiday, there were a lot of people willing to march, and uh, that evaporated immediately afterwards. And there's something particularly Hong Kong about that. Um, <laughs> and so my, my feeling, honestly, after coming from Hong Kong, it seemed to me a lot more... Um, of a serious problem reading about it than it did there because, frankly, I don't think the Hong Kong people are ready to get really political yet. You think that it would be a good idea for us to put together a show specifically about this? I think so, with people who you know, have a, a better sense of what's going on there than you can get after spending three days there. Well, well let's do that and leave off that topic for until and not spoil Good that. idea. Right, right. Anyway, um, shame that you weren't here last week, Jeremy, for the discussion that we had with Jiang Xueqin about the education system in China. I don't know if you got a chance to listen I to that. I listened to it, yes, indeed. So, so I, I mean, no, no offense to Jiang Xueqin, but I personally felt like, you know, even though there were some very interesting tidbits of information... I don't know that we did much to challenge a lot of the long-standing cliches about the Chinese education system, and I, I know you, you weren't there, so it, it, fault is really mine. Uh, maybe the way that I framed the discussion, and maybe I didn't draw out a guest who was clearly very knowledgeable about the subject. Uh, You're not rude and arrogant enough. Maybe, maybe that's mm. what it is. So I, I confess that after listening to the show, I felt like there were a lot of things I should have brought up or um, pushed back on a little bit harder. Well, one thing that I did push back on was. I asked Xuetin about you know what his prescription was for what most people would agree are these things that are you know plaguing Chinese education and for those of you who might not have, have heard the show you know I, I wondered whether his answers to the questions you know uh, that I put put to him about what to do they were things like you know promoting pedagogical diversity fostering a culture of risk taking and experimentation and uh, these weren't to my mind at least bite sized and actionable enough they, they that I think I said that it was like boiling the ocean. And so this week, I wanted to do something maybe a little more bite-sized. Uh, we get another perspective on education in China from a young American who's working here to promote high school debate, which struck me as just the sort of actionable thing that, that we might do to actually move forward to some of the bigger and more distant goals, like you know, encouraging critical thinking and maybe a more dialogic approach to learning. So anyway, this week, we're delighted to welcome David Weeks, who started the National High School Debate League of China in 2011. He's been organizing debate teams and competitions around the country. Thank you so much for joining us on Seneca, David. Thank you for having me, Kaiser. 
So I, I met this young whippersnapper actually a few weeks ago at the very disreputable Great Leap Brewery here in Beijing, where I often find myself on Thursday evenings after we record the show. Jeremy sometimes is reluctantly my my companion there. But what was it that you say? Nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually love the place, but uh, anyway, that affirms to me that uh, it's something I've very long believed that beer is an inherently good thing. Anyway, David, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, you're from the States, obviously. I think you went to Swarthmore. Is that right? Yeah. So um, I did competitive debate throughout high school and throughout college. I was a debate coach of high school students. Um, so I've been involved in the debate community in the United States for about 10 years. And I studied abroad in China. I've always been kind of interested in China, internet, interested in international relations, which is what I studied at Swarthmore. After I graduated, I kind of plumbed the seven layers of underemployment and realized that what I really wanted to do was come back to education and debate, which I've really felt passionately about and kind of combined that with my IR interest and China interest. So um, me and a fellow American came here in Beijing to start the National High School Debate League of China, which uh, organizes debate competitions now in 27 cities across the country, but wow. we started with only two. So what was the state of debate when when you first arrived here? Um, so when I arrived here, there were basically two loosely connected debating communities that were fairly fragmented and that were basically sort of united around, you know, a love of debate, but more often than not, the organizational prowess really came from a handful of, you know, a small handful of individuals. So the first Are these, being, these individuals teachers at high schools? Often they're either coaches of university debate teams or they're high school teachers. And but were yeah. these being conducted in Chinese or in English or in both? Or? Um, so one one community is was really the Chinese debate community. Chinese debate was fairly fractious and mostly took place at the intramural level. Schools would have like a debate club or something like that, and they would organize like, you know, a model debate that everyone would come and watch throughout the school. But there wasn't really sort of a, a culture of traveling to debate tournaments. You know, the government used to host, uh, you know, a national debating competition for university students. But in the high school space, really not so much traveling, not so much interaction outside of the school. Um, in the Chinese space. In the English language debating community, much smaller group of people doing British parliamentary style debate, which ah. uh, was sort of an import from Singapore and Hong Kong. And that's not really what you do at all. I mean, in fact, the Chinese name of your debating side, uh, your league is called the Meishu. Uh, yeah, it's Bian Lun Lian Sai, right? So it's the American style debating league of China. So what we do is we basically imported a debate format from the United States um, that's two versus two, and that was actually originally founded in sort of through a, a sponsorship by Ted Turner and CNN. Oh, so really? the, uh, the, cross, the cross-examination sessions are called Crossfire, and it's oh, sort God. of, uh, so, you know, that sort of uh, legacy is still present in the event. We still call it Crossfire. So. And tell me, how do you operate in China legally? Are you a company, or uh, what, uh, how, what's the legal structure, and how do the schools participate in it? Right, so when we got here, we basically started hosting debate tournaments kind of by the seat of our pants and hoped that no problems would emerge, and we were basically just individuals running debate tournaments because we thought that that was something that was important to do. As time went on, we registered an NGO in the United States. And then as time went on even more, we, we discovered that, you know, we really do need a mechanism of, you know, signing contracts, opening bank accounts, etc. to process FAPIAOs, all that good stuff. So we, uh, we start an education technology company here in Beijing. Oh, cool. Cool, cool. That's very good. Um, so I know, I mean, high school debate is a pretty commonplace thing in America. I, mean, I, I think uh, we were talking earlier and you said there were 150,000 people who participate in it uh, annually. I'm, I'm sure that many of our non-American listeners will have actually encountered it on American television. It's kind of a feature, maybe not as common as like 12-step recovery programs or <laughs> therapy, which are like on every fucking show now. But uh, growing up in America, I can attest that it was very, very popular. Everyone knows what a, a Lincoln-Douglas debate is. And debates are, are definitely ingrained in the political culture, what with the spectacle of presidential debates and, and, <laughs> and whatnot. But um, 
give us a sense of just how popular it really is in America at the high school or even the college level and, and maybe how common it is in other countries around the world. So in the U.S., there's quite deep uh, like uh, participation in debates. So you've got about 5,000 schools that are you know active members of one association or another. You have at any given point, you know, at, at, during any weekend, there are dozens of debate tournaments happening that range from super small local tournaments to uh, national tournaments held at, uh, at high schools or at universities, um, including some of the top universities in the country, actually, that attract, uh, you know, a couple of thousand students at a time. So the debate community is quite large. I think the total number of people who have participated in debate in the U.S. is about 1.5 million over, you know, I think about 30 years is when they started keeping mm-hmm. track of this stuff, basically. Outside of the U.S., I know that, interestingly enough, there's a lot of, particularly the Eastern European countries, um, have been very keen to sort of host international debate tournaments that bring in people from the English-speaking world, from the U.K., South Africa, um, Scotland, etc., but um, but yeah, so outside of the United States um, is not quite my you know area of sure. background or expertise. So, but uh, I'd say that it's it's yeah. quite quite large in Europe. As we well. can go right right to China though. So is is there really uh, much of a history of debate here? I mean, one would think that you know debate is a, a pretty conspicuous feature of parliamentary democracies, and so it might be something that would have say caught the attention of uh, late Qing reformers or early Republican era intellectuals. But of course, the, the roots probably go much further back, right? Right. So I think that, you know, throughout for millennia, I mean, or for centuries, you see, uh, you know, in Chinese philosophy, you see, you know, a persistent debate and tension between the ideas, you know, of legalists and Confucians and Taoists, right? And it's not like debate is like this, you know, the idea of intellectual disagreement is completely foreign to China or is a complete import. On the other hand, sort of the situation that you see in the United States where, you know, we're a very debate oriented culture and our political decisions are, are made and oftentimes people decide who they vote for based on elections, that very much is an import. The style of debate we do codification, like the, the very, the very formalist. I mean, right. The, the, so, X amount of time for presentation and then a rebuttal and all that stuff. I, I can't right. remember how it works, but yeah. Right. So I think the spirit of debate, the idea of like, you know, a rigorous intellectual exchange, you know, certainly has a lot of resonance in history in China. Perhaps the exact codification of that spirit, the way that we channel that, you know, it's a bit different in the West. I mean, isn't there also a difference in the fact that, um, I mean, something of the sort of Socratic tradition is is that you you learn to argue. It's about rhetoric, learning to argue something that you might not actually believe in, but you're doing it for the intellectual rigor. Which is, I mean, China doesn't have a tradition like that, does it? I don't think so, no. I think that the idea of the Socratic method or of sophism, right, of, of advocating the other side of an issue despite what you believe, or, you know, that, that's opposite to what you believe, um, is not really something that resonates with, with any, you know, chi- classical Chinese scholarship that, I, that I've read. But um, it's resonating with the students who participate in your, your, your debates, isn't um, it? That's actually one of the biggest U-turns for them to do, or one of the most more jarring parts of debate, is the idea of of advocating something completely opposite to what they believe. One of the, the first questions I always get from a new school that we train is, wait, so we only have to prepare one side of the debate, right? Like, we only have to have one case, right? We don't, if I believe the affirmative, I can just be the affirmative. I don't have to, like, do the negative, right? So the whole idea of putting yourself into someone else's shoes, I think is really, really important in order to promote critical thinking, in order to promote um, social skills and empathy, um, as well as sort of, uh, you know, being able to critically and intellectually assess an issue um, and maybe get to to, the, you know, the real truth of it through, you know, mutually respectful, uh, you know, discussion. Sorry to uh, interrupt, just uh, because I'm feeling, you know, I know Toastmasters, and we had a form of debating in South Africa that uh, was similar, but the rules were a little bit different. Do you think you could just basically sum up what the rules are of uh, measure 
<laughs> sure. So it's it's called public forum debate. Basically, it's two versus two. One speaker reads a case for five minutes, then the other team does the same. There's a crossfire, which is like a Q&A. Either side can ask or answer questions. Then there's an attack speech or rebuttal speech. Then another crossfire, a summary speech where you defend your arguments, a grand crossfire where most people just yell at each other and it's more or less a shouting match, but it's you know never boring. And then a final focus where everyone kind of concludes. Wow. So lots of short speeches, as opposed to some other formats where we have really long, like seven minute speeches where you only speak once. That has, I think, the effect of kids get very into debates. They get very excited, sometimes a little too excited, in fact. And how long in advance do they know what side they'll have to defend? So they actually find that out inside the debate, inside the room about two or three (laughs) minutes before the debate starts. We actually flip a coin to decide sides and speaking order. So... It kind of preserves, uh, you know, an element of spontaneity, which which I think is is really good and and yeah. scares the hell out of kids sometimes. But I think is ultimately that's you know, a, good a good thing. part of it. And uh, let's who, talk about topics. What, sorry, one more yeah. question about the rules. How do you decide who wins? Basically, debaters are supposed to we we encourage them to advocate a framework. So you know, some kind of philosophical standard or framework by which we evaluate different arguments. So, for instance, if the topic is like a China should legalize gambling or something like that. No, no, no. Uh, c- no. Let me cut you short. Is it is it by vote or a, a panel of judges? So in preliminary rounds, there's yeah. one judge who is, you know, we say the judge is God, right? And then in elimination rounds, there's panels of three, starting at local tournaments with quarterfinals, starting with nationals, more like all of the elimination so rounds, starting no with the top 32. Involved. No audience vote, although, you know, I have seen final rounds where the audience burst into applause in the middle of the <laughs> debate. And I, I that may have impacted how the judge, you know, perceived certain debates. Okay, sure. got it. Go so, ahead, so, Kaiser, yeah, sorry. Let's talk about topics. I mean, so we, we were talking earlier about Chinese language debate topics, and I know that Chinese language debate isn't something that, you know, of course, you being a native English speaker is as, as good as your Chinese is. You're probably, you know, you don't have a, a, an ear that's particularly well attuned to the finer points of, of rhetoric in Chinese, maybe. That's but. a nice way to put it, yeah. Okay, anyway, but, um, the, the debate topics uh, that, that come up, you know, that you, you've seen in, in debates that have been organized here locally, uh, you, you gave me some terrific examples that I jotted down, like, you know, one should never tell lies, or <laughs> it is better to go over mountains than to go around mountains, or China's dream is the world's dream. I mean, th- these are funny <laughs> and, and kind of, you know, uh, very telling. Uh, I, I, I mean, I guess I, I'm sure a lot of people are, are wondering here, you know, uh, are you held back in your ability to come up with and assign topics for debates for, you know, uh, for, for political reasons? Right. So I think that we have a lot more space. Those topics that you read were from the Chinese language debate space. I think that Chinese language debate topic selection is a good deal more scrutinized. There might not be a policeman in the room, uh, you know, with a microphone and and handcuffs at the ready, right? (laughs) But certainly it would be disingenuous to say that that if you say, you know, staged a debate in Chinese about the historical legacy of Tiananmen or something, that that wouldn't have some impact on your future career prospects or something like that. And if you continue to do that, that that your accommodations tonight. (laughs) (laughs) In the English language debate space, though, we do have a lot more latitude to talk about policy issues. We don't have to like back up to like aphoristic things like one should go around mountains and over mountains or like right? Like a Chinese dream is the world's dream. So instead, we can talk about actual policies. So for example, we actually hosted a debate tournament at Beida where we had 70 different schools from all across China come. The Youth League was actually in on it and actually sat in on the debates. And they debated the rise of China benefits the interests of the U.S. So, of course, you have a negative talking about democracy and how China's fundamentally like, in, you know, uh, state-owned enterprises in an illiberal intra-party democracy or something like that, right? And there's, I mean, there was, I guess, 
an, an outside observer might be really surprised that that's going on in China, mm-hmm. but it is. And we're able to talk about a lot of these things, I think, because there's an increasing consensus inside um, not only the Ministry of Education and, and sort of administrators, but inside the classroom. It's important to be able to talk about this stuff, because if you want to be able to talk to foreigners, or if you want to be able to talk to, you know, to people if you ever go abroad, it is important to be able to talk about these issues, because it is so central to, you know, I mean, we, we talk about politics, right? And we talk, we talk about this stuff. So it's kind of, you know, a global skill that you have to develop. So the, the whole idea of it's, it's more like education exchange. It's more a cultural activity and understanding just how these you know, strange, fat people called Americans work. I think that's what, it, what opens up the space for us. I'm, I'm wondering I mean, how, if you've ever just succumbed to the temptation to, to throw a little a perverse topic that would force somebody to, take, say, you know, to, to argue against the proposition, say, that Wang Jingwei, the uh, capitulationist governor of, of occupied China during the, the Civil <laughs> War, was uh, acting in the interest of his power, uh, making them just assume a position that, that is so antithetical to what they've been taught. Right. Uh, have you ever just... I mean, felt like doing that. <laughs> so, as tempted as I have been to to troll people with topic selection, sometimes, and as much as I think that you know some American leagues actually do deliberately pick god awful topics just because they don't have anything better in their sure. in their arsenal or whatever. You know, I haven't done that. However, I have you know heard of debates that have taken place. In particular, one comes to mind um, in Wuhan. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, this was in the university debate space. I believe in the English language debate space, where the topic was something like Japan should not be forced to apologize for its War, forced to apologize for its wartime atrocities or right, something. Exactly the same and, topic I had in mind. <laughs> right. So, so you know, you have you had one team who had to say, you know, oh, it's cool. You know, the past is the past. Bygones be bygones. You know, Japan can do its own thing. It doesn't need to apologize. They refused to do it. They, you know, water pre- under the Marco Polo Bridge. <laughs> they refused to do it. They wouldn't argue. They that. would they not refused. do it. They refused. Yeah. Wow. They just, just flat out refused. Well, what about something that's not so trollish, but is a sense of like, say, you, you know, the concept of universal values, as they call them in China. So oh, that's not controversial. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's not uh, trollish. I never right, said no, it wasn't exactly controversial. Right. That's the point. It is controversial, but it's not trollish. It's not like, eh, fuck you, Tiananmen, Japan, <laughs> <laughs> fuck you. You know, it's, right. it's something that there used to be a more lively debate in the media and on the internet, uh, which has kind of largely been shut down over the last few years. Right. So I, I think that this is where the English language debate space actually, you know, is is surprisingly sort of open, um, is that we can talk about that stuff. And kids do run, you know, arguments that their framework, their philosophical framework for their case might be about human rights. We debated the death penalty. A kid ran, you know, one of their arguments, I remember he's actually our number one ranked debater in China right now. He ran the argument that, you know, in the Cultural Revolution, Mao would use the death penalty as a mechanism of political repression, and that this, you know, had like ripple effects across society and undermined people's human rights. And, you know, there was a pause in the room. And then at the end of the debate, people clapped and, you know, life went went along and, you know, nothing came of it. So um, he was not clapped in (laughs) or But yeah, so we we are able to talk about that stuff. I mean, I guess if you think about it a bit more, it's not like a huge surprise. I mean, the Chinese constitution is, after all, a, a quite liberal document, right? And I think that, uh, or, I mean, it, <laughs> yes, <laughs> but it does say like you get human rights, right? Like freedom of speech shall exist. Freedom of speech, exist, freedom and, of yeah. uh, religion. I mean, yeah, but, you but, you're, you're not actually allowed to to, to champion its literal interpretation, though. <laughs> <laughs> sure, but, but what, what I mean to say is, I think that those general, you know, like a, a discussion of human rights or something like that, is nothing that would get you in trouble, and we see it 
it all the time. Um, I think that when it comes to applying that to a particular political a you know, a particular political situation, you know, Tibet, Taiwan, Tiananmen, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think then, sure, you might want to sort of yeah. think twice about saying that sort of stuff. But I think perhaps that's, I think it would safe, be safe to say that, you know, you, you would want to think twice about saying that pretty much, you know, at any situation. So I want to actually here. take this back to education, the, the topic that I, I this to originally. Um, I, I'm really curious, you know, Debate in America's next curricular activity, as it is here in China, it's not part of, uh, of the regular school program. You know, extracurricular activities for a Chinese high school student are already sort of rare enough. What kind of reaction are you getting from parents when, when uh, a high school kid says, Mom, Dad, I want to stay after school to, to participate in this uh, English debate society? Uh, what's, what's, what's typically the reaction? Is it, no, you know, go home and practice piano or... or do your homework. Right. So I think that there's, you know, we do definitely have to, when we sort of pitch debate, when we go to a school and introduce debate as an extracurricular activity, particularly if it wasn't there before, you know, we have to sort of allay fears that like, oh, this is taking away time from studying from the Galkal, particularly if it's, you know, the national class of a high school. And parents, there have been situations, and it's unfortunate, where parents will just say like, you can't go. Uh, you know, that weekend you have to do, you know, X, Y, and Z. You have to study for the Gaokao or something like that. 40 hours of homework. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So the extracurricular space, right, is is a good deal smaller simply because of, this, of the timetable of the academic calendar um, in China. So, you know, I, I always, when I introduce debate in Chinese high schools, I, I ask the kids, like, what time do you get out of class? And you'll hear 5.30, yeah. 6 o'clock, 10 o'clock if they have Wan Zixi or, like, late self-study. Uh-huh. And then I tell them, well, in the United States, generally we get out at 3.30 and and it's like a combination of amazement, usually that break out into applause or something, uh, you know, a combination of like seething jealousy and, you know, admiration that that exists somewhere or something. But yeah, so I mean, there's certainly like a, a more time to work with. And sure. there's a lot less here. Um, so, you know, we, we definitely there's there's a greater sense of trade offs. So parents are concerned about that. However, I think what really kind of helps us sell debate is the fact that it's not just high schools and pe- or people who are high school teachers or people who are really crazy about hosting debate tournaments in the U.S. who are doing this. There's actually debate host tournaments hosted at Stanford, at Harvard, at Princeton, at Yale. So maybe they don't quite get debate or why it's important, but they definitely get Harvard, Princeton, Yale, etc. Right. right? So, um, you so you know, there's the IV, the IV attachment. Right. We very much like it when we can just say that the spirit of debate is really important for cultural understanding, etc. But if you know, it, if you if your kid wants to go to Harvard, you better you do this. Right. If, 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 to if summarize we that, that problem, then yeah. then yes, it's yeah. like yeah. it also really helps with college admissions, mm. and that's not. I mean, I think that's that's not disingenuous. I think that's uh, that's very true. I mean, there's actually been statistics conducted on it, and it yeah, does no, actually I, it's not contribute. I mean, if you want to go to the United States, this was this for a Chinese person is a great way to learn, right? How and you should start I, thinking. I think, do you right, find that, that, that the uh, the kinds of kids that you're attracting are the kind that gravitate toward the liberal arts, or ones, or in the humanities, or or ones who. Uh, would be, you know, your your, your uh, natural sciences and engineering students. Definitely, uh, decidedly in the liberal arts and social sciences. I think that the, uh, you know, the guys who are more interested in natural sciences or mathematics, they do extracurriculars as well, but it's like mathletes or science olympiad or like robotics competitions, programming stuff. There are extracurricular activities that sort of serve those people, but we do get a handful of folks who are interested in, in economics and we do talk about econ a good amount okay. um, and environmental science, I suppose, and sort of policy implications there. But, um, but yeah, they're very 
very interested in like, if not liberal arts colleges, you know, a major in the social sciences or something like that. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, our, our recent graduating classes have actually seen some really amazing results. Our national runner-up got into Yale on a full scholarship, actually. And, uh, you know, our Chengdu champion of our regional tournament got into Harvard on a full scholarship. And, you know, maybe it just so happens that the causality works backwards and sure. that, you know, the, the smart kids who are, right, who ha- ha- debate, yeah, right. like kids who are academically qualified just happen to do debate because they're just like that. Um, but I think that it's also that debate actually uh, gives them a platform for getting noticed because unlike, say, a speech competition, you know, there's actual objective criteria in debate and there's a, a, a rubric and a system by which they're evaluated. You advance through preliminary rounds and elimination rounds. So by the time that you're a champion or you get to the national competition, you've already kind of proven that you are, you know, that you, you actually have a ranking that you can point to and you have competitive results where you beat your peers rather than shopped a test or rather than just, you know, said like got in a pack on the back and said, oh, you're awesome. You got a recommendation letter just like it's everyone like else. It's like sports. You, you, you got to just exactly. say the winner won. Right. This is actually, you know, one thing that when we when we were getting started uh, was was a, a huge, you know, barrier was people. What do you mean you can't pay, me pay you off to, <laughs> to get yeah, my kid? <laughs> or, or worse yet, right? Like, wait, you mean that there's no like there's a participation certificate. Everyone gets that. But you, you mean there's no like good teamwork award or there's no like, you know, like best dressed, most fashionable award or like, you know, most improved or something like that. And it's like, uh, no, we actually only based on what the judge says and what the ballot says. I thought this was American style. I thought everyone gets the star. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you can lobby the judge or something beforehand and, you know, hire a consultant or something. I so well, I, mean, I have to ask, I mean, you know, David, what kinds of backgrounds do the, the, the star debaters seem to come out of? I mean, is there, is there anything sort of a common denominator among them? They come from a social, social class or the, are parents privileged? Are they... Sure. So I think there's, there's actually a lot of diversity. So the the kid who got uh, our national runner up, the one who went to Yale that I mentioned, um, he actually grew up in uh, a rural village in Shandong province awesome. and ended up doing well enough on the Zhongkao to get into Qingdao number two, which is, you know, one of the top schools in Shandong, was in the national class, not, you know, not a wealthy person and studied in the national class, didn't, you know, go to a, a training center after school, didn't have those kinds of resources available. On the other hand, you know, I think that English language debate in a foreign country or, you know, a non-native English speaking country, you know, you do have uh, the simple economic reality that it will reflect existing economic inequities, right? So people who speak very good English tend to be wealthy, they tend to be urban residents, and they tend to have, you know, parents that if they haven't lived or studied abroad, have certainly traveled a lot and are, and sort of get why that matters. Because that's a really big issue in America, right? I mean, and you have actually the, the, the mixture of race into that as well, I mean, because you see kids from, I mean, who tend to be from wealthy, white uh, suburban or, or, or Manhattan backgrounds. Uh, and, and these are the kids that are, go- of course, going to have come up in households full of books and have a sort of genteel and very polished delivery style. And Right. Uh, there's an analogy in China then, right? You're saying that there's... Yeah, so I think that there's... Um the American debate community for for about a decade now has really been struggling with issues of racial and class privilege. I mean, it it is true what you're saying that, um, you know, your championship debaters in the United States, particularly at the national circuit level, tend to be disproportionately male, rich, and white. At least they're not dead. (laughs) It's the only thing they have going for them. So, so yeah, uh, you know, that is, it's, it's true. And the community is actually 
been and it's you know it's an ongoing sort of you know the community is 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 sort of enacting this sort of you know there is a struggle going on within the community about how to redress this right mm-hmm. is it simply that that debate is bound to reflect existing social and, and, and economic inequities and there's just nothing we can do about it and you know if you don't like it then you know go be a politician or a, rev- a Marxist or something or you know like fix society or is there a way that we can actually enact social change inside debate inside rounds and so, so you, you could have- do the same thing in the United States actually that you're doing in China in a way you know you could make a program aimed at getting communities into debating that weren't already there. Yeah, so actually this is something that I think it's 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 very recent actually where there's a nationwide wave of urban debate leagues. I mean, I may, problematic though the rhetoric of like the inner city is urban maybe. is code yeah. for black. Right. Is, right. And, and, I mean, yeah, these these debates Hispanic these debate urban debate leagues tend to be disproportionately black and Hispanic. That's true. But on the other hand, you do have sort of the communities that that you know are, are were traditionally, you know, for the past century excluded from competitive debate as an activity and uh, you know, now there are urban debate leagues that actually host you know citywide competitions and intramural competitions at these schools they figure out ways to integrate debate as an extracurricular activity into the actual curriculum so that there's some kind of continuity there and it's not just something you do for an hour a week so you know i think that's a really exciting development um ask another question about mm -hmm. the parents of of uh the kids that go through your programs which is how many of them do you think are actually interested in the idea of developing critical thinking in their children? And I ask because I suspect that, that that's becoming much more common uh, in China. I mean, I have a two-year-old daughter. And so when I walk around with her, you naturally start speaking to other parents. And, you know, being in China, most of them are Chinese. And I've heard all kinds of things. But a lot of mothers of young kind of toddlers uh, from my sp- daily spot survey uh, experience seem to really think that there is something really to be said for developing a a kind of critical Critical thinking approach. Right. So I think that parents are definitely interested in, and many parents are like, rather utilitarian. They want whatever works for their kid, whatever mm-hmm. gets them, you know, a better shot at, at a good life. And maybe, you know, for some people that, it, you know, the economic realities make sense that that goes, means going to Beida or going to, you know, a very good domestic university, you study hard for the Gaokao. Um, others have the, you know, either have the ambition or, the, you know, very often just the, the money or the resources to send them abroad. And if they're interested in sending them abroad, then you absolutely, you know, that, then critical thinking is sort of something that's very much uh, a concern. And um, I think that, you know, there is, a, you know, a lot of sort of nervousness about but, oh, well, how will, my, how will my child be evaluated by a university if they come from China? You know, it, there doesn't seem to be that many ways of actually proving that you have critical thinking abilities outside of maybe a, a 500-word essay. And it's, I mean, that can be sort of very hard to kind of substantiate unless there's something else besides your transcript and a rec letter that you can kind of bring out. Um, so parents are definitely concerned, uh, you know, increasingly so with like um, with critical thinking and that sort of stuff. So do, 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 to your mind, uh, is debate something that you see is inextricably tied to a Western philosophical or, or political tradition? Or is it something that you think taps something that's more universal, that's less culturally contingent? Do you think that it's, is it something that is – I mean, you, I know you, you, you say that there, there, there are you know, uh, traditions of philosophical discourse in, in, in Chinese philosophy, but – uh, you know, right. we don't uh, live in a, a, a pluralist society, and it's it's not one where an adversarial system is sort of present. In a right. Lot of so, so you know, I think this is actually really closely related to sort of why I came here to 
to start a debate league and why you know this really personally matters to me is I do think that it is actually you know, the concept of competitive debate is something that has independent value not just because it gets you in a college but because by the you know a mutually respectful rigorous critical examination through a structured dialogue you actually get to uh, some higher level of truth or by you know critical examination by uh, through peers through you know impassioned debate you actually get to some kind you get to a synthesis right like the, the Hegelian, Hegelian dialectic right I mean that is from the West right and I think it would be sort of disingenuous to ignore you know the the historical context in which that comes from or I mean the same with like you know Greek philosophy and the sophists right and Marxism has is rooted in that as well right I mean it's right in the idea of dialectic right so anyways you know I think that that's it's not something that's really traditionally present in China foreigners in China sort of constantly are sort of come come across this this sort of challenge which is they maybe have their own opinions about how China should how how China should work or you know p- certain ideas about you know things that should change about society but it's not really very productive or very safe sometimes to proselytize your vision of like the good life or what society should look like or political values on the other hand i think that it's very powerful when you can give people particularly open minded people young people the discursive and intellectual tools to articulate their own visions of of what society should look like and you know and you know what what life should be like in China 20 years from now and I think that's something that you know is, is actually that, that really kind of pushed me to do that Jeremy you can see why this guy was a successful debater right yeah, uh, and he's he's <laughs> Dude, good. This, he's that good. Was, that was that was that was just beautifully put. So this is part Thank of you. a a larger project. Then I mean, you see, it sort of promoting high school debate as really kind of a a step toward promoting more meaningful, lasting kind of uh, sustainable social change. Right, and deeper you know, engagement with ideas. With so politics. you are in fact an a, a, an agent of hostile foreign forces. Is <laughs> yeah, what yeah, you're yeah, telling right. us peaceful, yeah. peaceful <laughs> revolution. Right? Yeah, no, it, it's 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 oh, all good. just you know trying to you know inject uh, you know a very distinct vision of you know Western liberal multi-party democracy into into the country. I don't know. I mean, I do think that one thing that I really like to, about debate is that I, I'm not the judge, right? And if I'm if I teach a particular debate style to someone um, or you know particular rhetorical or intellectual concepts, you know that's agnostic to the content of it, right? Kids can say whatever they want. Judges, most of them, you know, increasingly. I mean, we have some foreign judges. We have a lot of people who are increasingly involved from the Chinese side, um, who are you know our alumni or people who are really into debate who are from China. Most of the time, the judge is is Chinese. So you know, I think that like society can be the judge, or you know, people can be the judge of what they believe. So you're teaching tools, you're teaching a method, which is, which is sort of like teaching science without scientific sorry, scientific content, right? That's that's great. Yeah, I guess that's that's a good way to put you it. You have my you have my full and unequivocal support in this. Uh, and on that note, I, I want you to tell us how. We, well, first of all, what what people can do if they if they like your cause and they want to. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you sustain yourself. Um, I don't know how your your technology consulting company or <laughs> educational technology company uh, actually makes its money. But I, I think there are probably a lot of listeners who would would love a link on our podcast page where yeah so if you in. go to nhsdlc.cn i know mm-hmm. it's a six letter an acronym not exactly it rolls off the tongue yeah, yeah. um but Nas- um National if you high school debate league, league of china high yeah. school debating league of china right? yeah um or if you just google like china debate will come up you know in in, in the front page or baidu yeah if you baidu may sure be in london we will definitely be number one okay. um ah, but, so i see <laughs> there's already been an economic arrangement oh, wow. um but but <laughs> <laughs> I, I just but, but, i just, but, just I, 
suppose what I mean to say is, you know, we charge a very small registration fee for for students to participate, about 200 RMB for most tournaments. You know, that includes food most of the time. Uh, They don't have to provide judges. We provide all the judges and the facility and all that stuff. So, you know, we don't really ask that people donate. What we do ask that people do is if you think this is like something that you actually want to support um, or if you think this is something that you agree with, then come and judge some debates. It doesn't take that long to get trained up as a judge. And we actually host a lot of competitions across the country, 27 cities. So ma- no matter you know where you are in China, we're probably hosting a regional or a national tournament somewhere near you. Okay, so this show will run just a couple of days. When's the next one? Let's, so we're let's actually running a here. national championship tournament from August 9th through 10th at UIBE, University City of International Business and Economics. Um, we've got 320 of China's best debaters, all who've advanced to elimination rounds of prior regional tournaments, all who are really into this, representing 86 schools, every province in the country. Wow, um, that's really, that's amazing. What, and that's it's perfect timing too. That's only a couple of weeks off. I, I encourage our listeners to check it out. UIBE here in Beijing. If you're in Beijing for the summer, yeah, come on August 10th. Okay. Wow. Uh, excellent, excellent. And with that, let's move on to, to recommendations. Uh, as is our custom, let's start with Jeremy Gould. So I'd like to continue my ongoing series of recommendations about podcasts about airports. And oh. uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> one of my favorite radio shows and podcasts is uh, Late Night Live, <laughs> Philip Adams. Um, and he has two guests on the architecture of, of airports. And again, it's interesting, particularly given the historical context where they talk about how, um, you know, before uh, terrorism, uh, people used to think that airports might actually become like the new public squares, something like railway stations, a place, the most cosmopolitan part of a city that would be, uh, you know, uh, ha- have people uh, having fun and buying stuff and eating and drinking and local residents actually enjoying the airport. Anyway, of course, this all went horribly wrong. Uh, but uh, an interesting little look at that. Nothing really to do with China, except that one of the guests uh, is a, an academic uh, who studies uh, Asian architecture, who, who researches Asian architecture, and he has some interesting opinions on airports in China. Do you, do you like Terminal 3, Jeremy? No, I hate it. Yeah, I mean, know. why I'm interested in airports right now is because I've been through a lot of them in the last while, and, you know, why do they suck so much? Right, they really do. I mean, Terminal 3 is just... I mean, it's, it's Terminal 3. I, I, I'd much rather fly internationally out of Terminal 2 if I can. Really? I mean, I'm, I'm completely the other I mean, way it's, it's just, I hate the damn train thing. I hate the train. I hate that train. train. But that's that's I, just so annoying. Terminal 2 makes you, I mean, you feel like, I don't know, I mean, you so feel like you're, you're in, in Detroit or something, or you're yeah, yeah, you know, in so 1980. Or in like. I like the 1980s. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going to make a recommendation that's debate-related before we, we pass on to David Weeks here. Um, so mine is for, it's just very self-serving too, it's an IQ Squared debate. IQ Squared is a debating organization, uh, I guess it started with the BBC uh, in the UK, and they've branched out into other Commonwealth countries and other former colonies and whatnot. Uh, in Hong Kong, I took part in one. It was, uh, the, the, the proposition was, the internet is making us stupid, or it's making us dumber, or something like that. And it was in Hong Kong, like I said. Uh, so on my team, I had the illustrious Mr. Jimmy Wales. Uh, so it was me and Jimmy Wales. So it was kind of a ringer. I was like, not going to lose that. Uh, and, of course, we were arguing against the proposition, that, you know, saying that the Internet is not, in fact, making us dumber. 
did not have to flip a coin or take the I would have been able to argue either side, I think. But on the other side was Tom Crapton from Social at Ogilvy, former New York Times correspondent. And Jeremy O'Grady, who's the editor of The Week. Um, it was four years ago. Uh, we kicked the shit out of them, but and it was a, <laughs> still an interesting topic. I think my, my highlight, if I can paraphrase it, was something about how uh, Tom Crampton over there whining about the advent of the Internet would be like, it r- reminds me is of, of nothing so much as a reciter of the Gilgamesh epics, you know, uh, freaking out at the introduction of cuneiform. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of an obscure reference. Anyway, that wasn't yeah, that's <laughs> it worked. It depends know. on the it, judges, it, 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 Kaiser. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so that's that's my recommendation. Uh, check it out. You can you can find it online. Uh, IQ squared. The internet is making us dumber or stupid or something like that. Yeah, IQ squared is a great podcast. Actually, um, a lot of good stuff from them. So I have two quick recommendations. So the first is if you uh, think that debate is cool and want to learn more about the bizarre little subcultures of debate that exist in the U.S., there's actually a 2007 documentary called Resolved, which uh, is actually available on Netflix, directed by Greg Whiteley. So a bit older, but gives you a really great perspective on uh, the sort of super competitive, very elite national circuit debate um, and sort of juxtaposes that with some of the urban debate leaks that we were discussing and, you know, actually depicts the debate community in the United States sort of wrestling with these issues of class and racial privilege. And I think it's, it's really well done. Wow. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. And the other recommendation I have is uh, an online magazine that's recently been started by a friend and former classmate from Swarthmore College named Lorand Laskai. The online magazine is called The New Bloom. Started it with some intellectuals and uh, some activists from the Taiwan Sunflower Movement. And uh, they've been putting out some really great stuff, so I'm excited to see what else they, they'll, they'll be putting out in the next couple in, of months. In, in Chinese or in English? Both. Some of the articles are in English. Some of them are in Chinese and traditional Chinese. And yeah, but obviously, uh, I, 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 think they have, I think they have you know, multiple versions of, of, of each publication. Yeah. Cool. I, I guess I want to. I want to just say, you know, this is another perfect example. I I meet so many of the much maligned millennials um, here in Beijing. A lot of these these people who come over, and I'm just I never cease to be amazed at how many of them are just doing really great stuff. Who have terrific Chinese. Who have the right attitude about being here. Um, so, so you're recommending the I'm millennials. Recommending that, 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 that I'm re- I'm, no, I'm recommending that a lot of people from I mean, Jeremy, you, you, my generation, our generation, people who came here a, a while back, who well, I think a lot of them are, are quite crusty and jaded and kind of. Well, uh, we're, we're, we're getting engage. old, Kaiser. Of course, <laughs> that's not, what not, happens. People get crusty. That's not that's willing age. to engage with or not not eager to engage. I mean, I'm always just. Well, most people are ageists, and that's a fact well, that yeah, can't be helped. That's that's really fucked up because I am, like I said, I am continually just mind blown by how cool some of these these people are and how uh, their, 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 the work that they do, the attitude they have, come here, their, their language facilities, their intellects, their, everything about them, it's just, it's wonderful. I agree. All hail the millennials. All hail the millennials. <laughs> yeah. Beijing especially. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe probably Shanghai too. But David, thanks for coming, man. It was great. A real pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Folks, we'll see you next week on the Snooker Podcast. Take care.